So it's something that I felt uh, really needed to to be thought about because if you don't solve this question for yourself, uh, what is it that you're doing? How do you know that you're doing something good? My point is rather that a code, a neural code, doesn't have the properties that would make it a good representation or meaningful representation for an organism. Isn't it wild that we can do so much under such false assumptions and metaphors? <sighs> That's a difficult question. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, I know we've made progress, but uh, what kind of progress? Well, we can... I, I still personally have no idea what perception is. This is Brain Inspired. Good day, everyone. Welcome to Brain Inspired. I'm Paul Middlebrooks. This episode, I spoke with Roman Brett, or if you're into more American bastardizations of French names, Romain Brett. Uh, he's a theoretical neuroscientist and the research director in computational and theoretical neuroscience in the Vision Institute, which is in Paris. In this episode, we start off talking about theory versus modeling versus experiment, but then we get into topics from his article in Behavioral and Brain Sciences, which encompasses much of what he's been thinking about and writing about for over a decade now um, through blogging and various other published articles. The paper is called, Is Coding a Relevant Metaphor for the Brain? And the central claim is that we misuse the term code when we talk about a neural code and its relevance to the organism and to the organism's brain that is said to be encoding things in the world. There's an important difference between a brain's perspective and our perspective as an outside observer, uh, giving those brains tasks to perform. When we try to understand how some neural activity relates to the task, uh, we use our own perspective rather than the brain's perspective. But we talk as if we're using the brain's perspective. Hopefully that will become clearer in our discussion. Um, that discussion includes topics like various notions of information, representation and its various roles and properties. We get into process metaphysics versus substance metaphysics. So lots to think about here. And before that, we get into the interesting and unique experience of writing a behavioral and brain sciences article. I link to the relevant material uh, at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 79. If you value this podcast and you want to support it and hear the full versions of all the episodes and occasional separate bonus episodes, you can do that for next to nothing through Patreon. Go to braininspired.co and click the red Patreon button there. If you take one thing away from this episode today, I think the thing to take away is something that Roman has done that I would strongly recommend you implement if you can. And that is to set aside some block of time every week to ponder the meaning and implications of whatever you're doing, uh, its validity, and so forth. That's what I think. And Roman is a real testament to how that kind of practice can pay off. So uh, I wish that for you. Roman, thanks for joining me on the show. Uh, and good late afternoon to you. I know it's, it's late afternoon in, in your world. Thank you for 
inviting me. So you have a uh, really broad range of interests from spike initiation, how spikes are initiated in neurons, all the way up to broad philosophical issues in the theoretical neuroscience world. But I would I'd love to hear just how you characterize your interests. <laughs> That's a difficult question. Maybe another way to ask it is not many people cover both the theoretical side and broad philosophical questions, mm. uh, which you cover in essays uh, on your blog and in published manuscripts, and also getting down to the nitty gritty of spike initiation, for instance. So I wonder maybe where the, these interests came from, if you've always had such a broad array of interests, or if it's sort of developed the theoretical and epistemological side has developed over time, or if it went the other way. Yeah, so um, the epistemological uh, aspect of my work has developed uh, fairly recently. I mean, maybe 10 years ago. I don't know, maybe from reflection on my own work and uh, out of uh, frustration. <laughs> Yeah, what, what do you mean? Something what, like what, that. What's the frustration? What was the frustration? You know, I, I've been working a little bit on some systems neuroscience, um, specifically on, uh, on uh, audition, sound localization and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, at some point, I felt a little frustrated. That, um, I was wondering whether we, would make any, we were making any progress, really. You know, it it felt like uh, writing papers were like kind of uh, rhetorical exercises. And uh, so that was the frustration. I, at some point, I needed, I felt that I needed to take some time to think about what it is that we're doing and what's, what's the meaning. But I, th I think a lot of people feel that way. I felt that way. But so, so there's progress writ large in neuroscience. And there's also personal progress. And when you're doing mm. the rhetorical exercise of writing a paper, that paper is progressing your career, presumably, or that's the, the hope. And then you also have three other papers in the background waiting to be written. And so one can hardly take the time to think, well, now I'm, I'm going to step back and consider these larger issues and work on them. I don't think many people feel the luxury of time to do that. How did you manage okay. that? Uh, that? That's an interesting question. I don't think it's it's a luxury, <laughs> but it's something that uh, doesn't come naturally in the sense that um, we're, we're always involved in various projects and um, typically we, we don't really have time to really think deeply about um, uh, philosophical issues or conceptual issues. And uh, so for me, what I decided to do is just take one day off, I mean, off, off the normal work yeah. to uh, just take uh, time to think about uh, things independently of any paper or project or whatever. Um, just take some time to, in my case, it was time I took to write my blog. Uh, so every, every Wednesday, I would take the day to just think about whatever I, I, I felt I wanted to think about and write something about it. Yeah, so I did that on uh, different subjects. It's still on my blog. So yeah. some on uh, perception, quite a bit on perception, some more general about, uh, you know, philosophy of science, 
things like uh, what's uh, what's a good model, things like that. Um, yeah. I said, actually, yeah, I mentioned that uh, this came out of frustration a little bit. So part of it was scientific frustration, but also uh, the frustration that uh, you experience when you're a theoretician in a very empirical field, like biology. That is that um, many biologists, they don't really understand what theory is and what it's for, what's the use of it. And, and there's a lot of confusion between uh, theory and uh, you know, running a model making a simulation is that's they're, not the same thing they're conflated often yeah in the biological realm yeah yeah the model is the theory <laughs> for instance yes um right but a simulation is not an explanation and uh in in theory what you look for is explanations and that's not the same thing but then this is something probably uh many people like me have experienced uh, you have to explain it is your uh, responsibility to explain why your model, your theory is is good or not. And but what does it mean? It turns out it's not at all an easy uh, question yeah. to answer. <laughs> in fact, uh, what's what's a plausible model, for example? You know, you have this phrase "biologically plausible." I never quite understood what it meant. What's biologically plausible? Does it mean that uh, you have to name it a neuron? It has to have channels. What's that? <laughs> right. It's it, it it's not easy, and there are different. You can see in the field that there there are very different perspectives on this. You have, um, well, broadly characterized. You have this. Uh, you have bottom up and top down approaches, or you have uh, normative approaches. You start from a problem, uh, typically a computational problem. That would be a Mars, uh, David Mars approach. And then you think of how this problem might be solved, and then you look for an implementation in the brain. Mm -hmm. That's one theoretical approach. And you have other approaches to developing theory, which starts from looking at the, the, the properties of neurons, measured properties and things like that. And then you try to understand uh, what uh, maybe emergent properties of this, of this, uh, of this components and things like that. And I don't think either of these of these approaches is is fully satisfying. But just to say mm. that there are different approaches actually to what modeling is, what good modeling is, and uh, I don't think people agree on that. So it's something that I felt uh, really needed to to be thought about because if you don't solve this question for yourself, uh, what is it that you're doing? How do you know that you're doing something good? Yeah. So. I think I think it was an important thing to do. But one can come to a place where it reduces this the rate of your experimental work to zero because you realize that almost everything you're doing has no <laughs> firm ground upon which to stand. And then where do you go? Do you just leave experimental biology or neuroscience completely or do you somehow bring the theory in and fix the experimental problems that you're working on. I, these things are very abstract that I'm saying right now, I, I know. But uh, the worry is that your your productive work in the lab will just come to a screeching halt if you really had to consider all the theoretical issues because it's still also up in the air. So you manage to continue on. So but just in your head, 
do you ever think, well, I should, I need to not do any experimentation and just consider these larger questions because they're the bigger questions that are ultimately going to be the roadblock we need to get past? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think different approaches of have have value. You can just sit sit, uh, sit on your chair and think about theoretical questions, and and it can be valuable. It can, not necessarily is, but it can be valuable. But um, what I think is also very valuable is uh, an approach in which uh, you don't necessarily distinguish theory and experiment as different kinds of activities. And I think that's... Uh, I don't think experimental science actually exists as a something completely isolated. It shouldn't, anyway. It's not just that it shouldn't, it's that it doesn't. Because... Uh, Every time you do an experiment, even a measurement, you're doing it because you have some idea in mind. You're doing it by you because you're either trying to prove something or you're looking in some direction. And, and that is, to some extent, uh, theoretical. It's just that uh, you might not make it explicit to yourself. But uh, all science is theoretical to some extent. You're trying to answer some questions. You're not just trying to just report an anecdote. So um, it, sure. any empirical science is to some extent theoretical, but uh, and, and for these reasons, I think it's uh, valuable if you think about the theory that is implicit in your scientific activity. And, and then if you make it explicit... Uh, you might have a chance to question it and, and to make progress on that. Another aspect of this is that, so, you know, for instance, we're, we're going to talk about your behavioral and brain science paper, which relates to a lot of your other thoughts and, and work here. But when you start reading something like that about whether coding is a relevant metaphor for the brain, then you can really go down the rabbit hole and you end up in some philosophically deep uh, waters, and we only have a limited number of hours in the day. I mean, you you have a, a a family. I know I have a family. We have obligations to the world. Um, we sometimes we have to shave. I haven't in a while, you know, uh, and things like that. Sometimes we have to shower, but then you can spend all your time re th just going down the philosophical road. And I think it's really valuable to at some point you have to resurface and make some sort of progress in with with that theoretical background but it's really tempting to just keep swimming in the philosophical waters it seems to be a difficult balance and do you think that we have the right balance right now between theory and experiment in in neuroscience and in you know the study of intelligence a larger picture mm. it's a difficult question because um first it depends what is meant by theory yeah, so what is meant by theory? I mean, there is quite a bit of theory uh, in in neuroscience. But I think that you go to a typical neuroscience lab and it is vastly experimental with theory yes. sort of in the background. No, that's that's true. Um, that's certainly true. I mean, biology in general, not just neuroscience, is, is very empirical generally. The question is what kind of theory we need. I see quite a bit of, I mean... A lot of modeling, developing models and data analysis a lot these days, particularly. These days, yeah. <laughs> because we have more data than before, maybe. But um, 
to me, that's not really theory. That's not what I would call theory. Theory, f- I don't know. I, I would give an example of theory. Uh, th- theory would be uh, Darwin's theory of evolution. That would be mm-hmm. kind of the uh, main theory in biology. And it's it's not mathematical, necessarily. Right. Uh, but it's theoretical in the sense that it's uh, broad. It's, it's supposed to explain things that are general. And uh, this kind of theory, I don't think there is so much of it uh, in neuroscience, in biology. Yeah. I mean, it's also because it's very difficult to develop this kind of theory. So, um, so the balance between theory and experiment, I don't know, it's a difficult question because uh, there's not a single kind of theory. And at the same time, I'm not sure the question is well-framed anyway. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, but... that's, no, no, that's great. Here we go. This is what I'm talking about, though. Because every step of the way, you have to think, well, is it even, is it even the right question? And uh, which is, you know, what we're going to talk about with the coding metaphor as well Yeah. in a few minutes. So, so for example, you know, there's, um, I've been trying to write a book on, on uh, excitability and action potentials. And uh, by doing that, I've read a lot of old papers from the 50s and 60s and, and so on. Like Hodgkin Huxley type? Exactly, Hodgkin Huxley. And it's really fascinating when you, you really read those papers. Um, I mean, Hodgkin, he was, he was doing the math and, and the physiology, right? And, mm-hmm. and the physics. And when you read the papers, you can see that his understanding of, of, of the physics is really deep, actually. Uh, and at the same time, uh, obviously, his understanding of physiology is, is very good as well. And the kind of theory he was making was really indistinguishable from uh, his empirical work, I think. So it's a kind of scientific activity which you cannot characterize as either theory or, or, or experiment. Yeah, I don't. Do, do we even need to think of Hodgkin Huxley work as theoretical because it is so dis- just descriptive of the physiological processes? Well, there definitely is some theoretical development, that's for sure. Of uh, you know the ionic theory of excitability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know nowadays we we think about this this work and it's just things that we read in textbooks, and we don't realize that seventy years ago. It was not at all obvious that there were eons passing through channels, little holes in membranes and things like that. So all that, uh, they had to uh, imagine uh, based on a number of clues and to contrast them with other hypotheses which existed at the time and which we just don't discuss anymore so much, so much now. Um, That's right. So uh, there was definitely a strong theoretical development there and their experiments were there to further develop the theory. Yeah, so that was an interesting balance, even though I don't think balance is really the right word. It's really the interaction that is interesting. But in that case, so model fits right in between theory and experiment in that case, right? That's where sort of modeling, it didn't begin, obviously, with Hodgkin and Huxley, but that's a quintessential very early model. These days, models are ubiquitous. And when I say you walk into a neuroscience lab and typically it's mostly experiment, I actually include modeling in that these days because everyone has a model, the model experiment loop, but then the theory connects almost to the model 
which then connects to the experiment. And then there's the, you know, quicker loop with modeling and experimenting. And I almost consider those one thing at this point. <laughs> so in the case of uh, Hodgkin and Huxley, they use the model to, uh, I mean, as a tool to uh, try to confirm the theory or to develop the theory. Yeah. But nowadays, when we use a Hodgkin Huxley model, we don't do theory. That's right. Yeah. We don't do theory. <laughs> we take the model, we say, well, a neuron works in this way. And I've made these measurements, I put, put them in the model, and I simulate it. But at the time, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was, uh, well, I will make the hypothesis that uh, the membrane is permeable to sodium. And so let's say that this, this current is, uh, uh, I model this current in this, in this way. I put this all together. And uh, if I do this, I can, uh, I can see that the different measurements I make are co coherent, basically. And that's how the model is used. And it's not the same thing to... Uh, uh, it's completely different from the data-driven approach where you measure a bunch of stuff and you put them in a model and you expect that by simulating it, something new will come that you haven't measured. But that's not uh, developing theory. Maybe that's using some theory, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but the model here is not uh, used to develop theory. But it can be used to develop theory. Uh, what I had intended to ask you about and, and to focus on is your behavioral and brain sciences paper, Is Coding a Relevant Metaphor for the Brain? And just before we step into talking about this, uh, I actually want to ask you about the experience of writing a behavioral and brain sciences paper briefly, because the idea of this type of journal, uh, of this type of article is wonderful. So uh, for those who aren't familiar, the idea is that um, someone uh, like you, Roman, writes a, a piece, writes an article, and then there's an open peer commentary section where, I don't know how many, how many commentaries were there? 20? 25, 26, 25. something like yeah. that. Yeah. So it's a lot, a lot of commentaries can then be written in response to the quote-unquote target article, and then the original author of the target article can then respond to those responses. And in principle, I love this idea because, you know, uh, it's, it's open, you get to see everyone's thoughts about the tar target article, for instance, but in practice, even reading it, I find it extremely frustrating often because the open peer commentary is, I would say, more often than not, not so much focused on the target article, but instead in advancing their own theoretical perspective and their own ideas. And some hardly touch on any of the issues in the target article and instead just jump to whatever they want to be talking about at the time and use the smallest little bit of the target article to then uh, be able to write about whatever they want to write about. And, and many people don't, actually. There's some great uh, commentaries that are very specifically focused on the target article. But I wonder what your experience was like writing that and if you agree with my assessment. And and I honestly, I don't know what the open peer commentary instructions are to the commentators, if it is to focus on the target article specifically or to use that as a bridge to whatever the hell you want to talk about or or whatever. So I just wonder about your experience with that. Yeah. Um, writing this paper took me a lot of time. But it's built off of a lot of previous work and blog articles, which, yes. 
maybe that's part of the time you're referring to. Yeah, well, actually, I started writing this paper maybe eight years ago or something like that. Wow, yeah. But I, and I had it read by a couple of people. And then I buried it <laughs> I, because I thought, um, I don't know, I thought it would be quite controversial. I would make lots of enemies and for no good uh, <laughs> outcome. Um, I, I was very hesitant to actually publish it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know why at some point I decided I should, uh, I should get it out. But anyway, I rewrote it completely and I decided to send it to this journal, which is really a great journal. Um, I've read a number of, of papers in that journal, which are really cool. I mean, the, the format that you described is, uh, is very interesting. I find it uh, extremely uh, valuable to have these commentaries that normally you would see nowhere in, uh, in response to two papers. So... Um, so that was interesting. The process itself was uh, a little bit painful, I have to say. It took <laughs> took maybe two years, I think. So, From submission yeah, to then get commentary and then respond to the commentary. And, and publication. And, yeah. Jesus. And, and because, uh, I mean, these commentaries come after a uh, standard formal peer review. And wow. in my case, I had, I think, maybe seven reviewers, at least. I don't remember exactly. Wow, uh, a very large number of re reviewers, and um, because in a, a typical, so just to state it, a typical you know neuroscience paper, for instance, has three reviewers or so. Right. Yeah, or two. Yeah. Or yeah, exactly. Two or three. Yeah. In this, so I don't know if it's uh, actually uh, usual for BBS, but uh, in this case, I think the paper was very polarizing. That is, there are there were reviews that are really completely different in terms of appreciation of the paper. Some say that it was complete nonsense and others uh, really thought it was insightful. So <laughs> that was not easy to respond to these reviews. I basically rewrote the paper. And You're talking about the, the, the initial reviews of the seven reviewers? Yeah, the initial Those reviews. Are the, the these initial are what reviews. you're talking about? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, then, and, then, and it <laughs> took a lot of time as well. And then it took a lot of time for them to respond one of the reviewers uh, flipped. It was positive and then negative, and then and then I had <laughs> more reviewers, and and basically the yeah. reviewers were very split. But uh, yeah, in the end, the editor decided that uh, maybe that was the kind of papers that the journal was looking for. You know, yeah, something that is a bit uh, that creates some controversy. Yeah, and then the commentary. Um, uh, process. I don't think there are particular instructions actually for uh, commentaries. Okay. Uh, they don't have to be criticisms of the paper. They can be just commentaries on on a few points that are just touched by the paper and that people want to uh, expand on. For example, it it's quite free and uh, and people uh, make proposals for commentaries. Oh, I see. Uh, which the editor. Uh, um, select so uh, in this case i haven't seen the the proposal i don't know who proposed a commentary but that was maybe i don't remember exactly how many so there are some who some commenters who are invited and some exactly who then yeah, propose. yeah. Okay. so you sent a one-page uh, proposal something like that for for hmm. the commentary where you not even that half a page where you explain what points you want to comment on also what's your personal expertise and things like that and and the editor selects 
based on, I mean, in order to have some diversity in the views, mainly, I think. And so I think there were, I don't know, maybe 70 submissions or a lot of submissions. Whoa, yeah, a lot, wow. of, a lot of submissions. Yeah. But I, I didn't get to see them. I saw only the, the commentaries that were invited. And uh, it was an interesting process uh, to respond to this commentary. Uh, very unusual, because uh, you have to make one response to 25 people. Yeah. And it's a bit difficult to make something that is uh, readable. <laughs> yeah, because you have to summarize so many different people's points yeah. of view and integrate it and lump them, lump yeah. 15 of them together in one respect and then 20 together in another. And yeah, it's, yeah. But it was interesting because it, uh, I mean, in the process, it made me f formalize some new points, basically. Uh, so I think the response is, uh, is valuable, too. I mean, it, it brings some different points than the, the main paper. I agree with you, and I think that it's super valuable for you, the writer. That's most valuable for you, but for the reader, it, it, so it's a taxing endeavor to read because mm. you, you read the main paper, which has, I, it's putting forth ideas. And as the reader, you're trying to assimilate these ideas into your own worldview and then think critically about it. And then you read all of the reviews, if you're so inclined. And when you read reviews whose authors seem only to write to advance their own agenda and not even to address issues in the article or not even to compare their own agenda with mm. statements in the article then it becomes extremely frustrated because you've already spent so much time on this thing uh, as the reader. As the writer, I think it's the most valuable thing you can probably do, and yet still taxing. Maybe uh, the way they should present it is to have the response before the commentaries, because in the... <laughs> no, because in the response, I, I, I have, they asked me to cite each of the commentary. So I, I really present a synthetic view of the commentaries. Yeah, that might... Yeah. But that's anyway, an idea. That's an idea. So if you want to to read it, yeah, maybe it's better to start with the response. Well, yeah, yeah. I just I wanted your take on it because I've read many of those articles, mm. and it's a it's a common theme that's frustrating as a reader. It's just some people just want to advance their their own I mean, ideas. I, I have read uh, other papers in BBS, like uh, Kevin Oregon's paper, for example, on sensory motor theory of perception. And it's interesting to see also the different views that exist in the community, the diversity of views that people have. Even if you disagree with them or don't find them relevant, it's interesting to, to see that they exist. And that's something that you typically don't see in the literature, especially on broad issues like this. That's right. No, I mean, in principle, I think it's a wonderful format. And, you know, you, you enjoy the process, correct? Yeah, it was a bit painful though, but uh, I, I think the I'm happy about the results. <laughs> let's say. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Let's talk about the results. So, so the so the paper is called "Is Coding a Relevant Metaphor for the Brain?" So let's say I I uh, let's say I'm a monkey neurophysiologist because I was. Let's say I wheel my monkey uh, in his chair into the lab. You know, I put him in front of a screen and show him some images, and I'm recording neurons while he looks at those uh, images. And I can tell every time when he sees a giraffe because the neuron that I'm recording uh, starts firing a lot whenever a giraffe appears on the screen. So that means that that neuron is encoding giraffes, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. So here you're referring to the technical sense of, of code, 
That is to say, there is a correspondence between two things. One thing in the world, or stimulus parameter, something like that, and something that you measure in the brain. So there is a correspondence, and you call that code, in the same sense that there is a correspondence uh, in the Morse code between letters and dots and dashes. And uh, so far, it's... It's fine. I mean, it's just uh, one word that you use to to talk about correspondences. But the problem is that very quickly we use uh, there. There's a drift between this technical sense and a diff and different senses, which are much broader than that. Because in the in the sense of a correspondence, saying that a neuron encodes um, stimulus doesn't mean much. It's It's not very relevant. You could say also, yeah, an example that I, I gave in a paper that rain encodes atmospheric pressure. You could say, you know, any two things that cover, you can say it's a code. But when we say uh, this neuron encodes giraffe, we mean a little bit more than that, probably. And I say probably, but very often it's explicit, in fact. Uh, what we mean is that the brain is using this code to form a, an image of the giraffe, a representation no, of that giraffe, to know that there yeah. is a giraffe uh, that he's, uh, he's looking at. Um, the problem is that there is no logical implication between these two senses, the technical sense of correspondence and the sense of representation. And, and by correspondence, you mean a correlation between the two things? Right, just a correlation. Yeah, correspondence would be maybe a, a, a strong version, but of course can be yes. statistical. Yeah, so there's this, uh, most often the representational sense is something that is implied when we use uh, code. It's not even implied. We, we write it. I, I remember writing, some, you know, the, the neural activity represents whatever the psychological phenomenon was and, and getting back responses. You can't use represents there because for yeah. the same reasons that we were But talking the, uh, about. The subtlety is that we use the term represents or, yeah, represents, for example, But there is always this um, ambiguity about who is the target of this representation. Because, of course, this neuron's activity represents the giraffe for you, the neurophysiologist. The, the more difficult question is whether it represents something for the monkey. And this is much more difficult to assess. And so, yeah, there's this drift here when we we make this uh, confusion between the observer's perspective and the organism's perspective. Even the term perspective might be actually confusing. But Sure. In the paper, you call this semantic drift, which is semantic drift. Uh, yeah, a shifting of the meaning from correlation, correspondence, like you said, to more, um, to larger claims like representation and causality, which we haven't mentioned yes. yet. Yeah. Yeah, and this semantic drift you you find in the coding metaphor, but also more generally in, in some in scientific writings. Uh, uh, quite often, is we use uh, technical terms like uh, information. I mean, uh, technically they have a very precise and limited sense, but we also use the term information when uh, much more broadly in a, in a way that has little to do with Shannon theory. Well, so. Let's go ahead and just talk about information for a moment because this comes up 
in the paper. And so when people say information, typically we can assume that they mean Shannon information, I suppose. But that the, but there are other alternative definitions of information that people use. I mean, there's the colloquial you know, information as in, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it, you know. So the nice thing about Shannon information is that it has a, it's a very specific meaning about communicating messages between a sender and receiver. Um, and the issue there is that the sender and receiver both have a set of possible messages that could be being communicated. So they're both sort of external observers in that sense. And I mean, maybe you can elaborate on this, but as you were just saying, that the coding metaphor um, and, and the sense of representation implies that there is someone for whom the representation, you know, someone who has a perspective for whom the representation exists. And, and your point is that that is the experimenter because I know that the giraffe is on the screen. So I know that the activity of the neuron is, quote unquote, representing that giraffe. But the monkey in this example would need already a representation of the giraffe, a set of possible messages, the giraffe being one, for that neural activity to be representing the giraffe in their mind. Maybe you can unpack all of that instead of me just rambling on here. Yeah. So information in communication theory is a very specific kind of information, as you, as you explained. So the activity of that monkey neuron would be uh, informative that there is a giraffe in the sense that um, there is a correspondence between the activity of that neuron and the presence of the giraffe. Yeah, more generally, uh, you you have also graded graded correspondences. For example, one example that I know well is in a sun localization. You have neurons whose activity, like the frying rate, for example, co-varies with the position of the sound. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, when you see uh, this firing rate, you can deduce the position of the sound. But one thing that we easily uh, forget in a uh, discussions about uh, information is that in a in such correspondences there are always not two things but three three things there's a uh, the position of the sound source there's the fine rate but there's also the correspondence between the two the mapping mm. and to deduce one of these three things you need to have the two others not just one so if you just have the fine rate you have nothing really you just have uh, some neuron blinking basically uh, so to deduce the position of the sound source, you would need also to know the mapping. But that an organism would know this mapping makes little sense, in fact, because it's a mapping between something in the brain and something in the world. It cannot be something that the organism possesses. It's just a description that the observer makes. So uh, uh, this makes this type of information relevant maybe for an observer to quantify certain uh, relations between uh, observable, observable variables, but it's not the kind of observation that is relevant f for an organism in terms of uh, perception. And it's not the only meaning we give to information in general. For example, you could say that if you read a, a physics textbook, you learn some things, you're going to get some information about the world. Right. Right? Yeah. What kind of information are we talking are we talking about there? 
Is it something that we can quantify in a number of bits? That's not what it's about. The kind of information we get is a relation between different kind of things in the world. It's uh, things that you can do in the world and expectations that you would get from that. It's not in terms of uh, Shannon theory. It's not what we mean here. Mm -hmm. And this is a perspective that is probably more relevant for an organism. What kind of information does an organism need? Well, it doesn't need to know, for example, that uh, the sound is at 2.5 radian on the right uh, of its nose. Probably not. But what it, it needs to know is that if it turns its eyes in a certain way, it will probably see something moving. And so uh, this notion of information is a notion that is relational. It's not a number, it's a relation between things, different, different things, things you can do, for example, and, and, and the expectations of your sensory signals, this kind of things. In the sense of turning, um, so there's a sound, and for the organism to know if I take this action, uh, I might see something moving. Would it be accurate to say that in the relational information sense, if I turn my head, I will be toward the direction of perhaps seeing something moving instead of I will turn my head 2.7 radians and that is the place where I will see something moving. Am I off track there thinking that the relational sense of information then is more of a directional, a gradient-based uh, rather than a calculate the angle at which the fly will be flying near me to reach out with my tongue and grab it, for instance. There are two points, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, first, information for an organism cannot be in the sense of a reference to something that is outside the organism. This is the first thing, because yep. uh, it's outside the organism, so it, it, uh, that reference is only useful for someone else. So that's the first thing. So if you say that uh, this firing rate encodes the sound location because I can deduce uh, the angle from it, you're missing something. Right. By relational, uh, um, the relational view of information, uh, what I mean is that uh, information in the sense of, say, the laws of physics, for example, is not a set of values. It's relations. For example, a, the uh, relations between different properties of a gas, the law of, the law of gas, of perfect gases, uh, where, you, where you have different relations, which is PV equals NRT, okay? Uh, that's an information you have about uh, properties of, of gases. It's, it's not a value, right? It's just some relations that, that exist between things. In, in sound, sound localization, for example, you have relations such as, um, well, this sound wave arrives uh, one millisecond later than this other sound wave, things like that. You have different relations. Uh, other types of relations are sensory-motor relations. If I uh, make this movement, I expect these sensory signals to, uh, to be such and such. Part of your point is that the movement itself is crucial in that accounting. The information has to do with specifically if I make this movement. I mean, that is your because that's internal to the organism, correct? You can also have relations that are purely sensory. 
like in in pitch perception for example um so right uh, sounds that evoke a pitch are sounds that are periodic basically so the relation that there is in this, in those kind of sounds are periodicity so there is they they follow a certain law and that's something that you can uh, observe if you just see the wave basically and so you, there are relations that you can uh, that you can observe which are sensory so you you have different kinds of relations sensory relations or relations with your own movements and things like that right but in any case what you get is something that has structure uh it's and it and that's something that cannot be captured by tuning curves for example hmm. often especially in yeah, in sensory neuroscience maybe it's less the case now but um a lot of sensory neuroscience has been uh yeah in terms of, uh, of tunings of neurons to different properties but that 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 cannot work that's that's almost legacy though from recording single neurons and presenting a bunch of different conditions and and like you just said it is changing with the multi electrodes these days where you're measuring a lot of different things a lot of different neurons at once i mean there are tuning curves are still very prevalent but yeah well i don't know if that's changed so much i mean you can make tuning curves multidimensional it's still the same problem yeah 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 so the problem with tuning curves tuning curves is that they are bad variables but the variable only exists if you have defined the object for example a uh, the orientation of a bar exists once you have defined that there is a bar that's right and uh same for sound sources there must be a, uh, a source all these ideas of inference uh, inferring parameters properties of things in the world it's not that they're not relevant but they are conditional of first having built a world um that is you need to have objects for them to have properties that you will infer and and that's a very important part of perception that is dismissed in this approach uh formation of objects um and scene analysis things that you find in gestalt theory for example that but that has completely disappeared in the kind of tuning curve approaches uh and and these are to me the difficult parts of perception how is it that a bunch of pixels is an object um i don't think pixels is right here but anyway yep yep um so uh in, in perception or there must be in information in general there must be a notion of structure relations between things and so uh, in the neural coding li- literature you don't you don't see that so you've called this relation um uh this relational aspect of information like the laws in physics uh you call this subjective physics the idea that there are laws uh that that relate the sensory signals specifically with actions not specifically but yes um yes it's an analogy which I'm probably yeah I'm certainly not the first one to make between uh, science and perception that is to say that uh, so in science you're trying to look for relations between observables and also between things that you can do and observables that is uh, experiments and for an organism there is something similar in that uh, well you want uh, you want to know what would happen if you do certain things so uh, you want uh, that's the analog of an experiment 
if I make such such and such actions, uh, what would happen in terms of the sensory signals, for example? You could also say, uh, we can also observe some relations, as I mentioned before, between different kinds of sensory signals. For example, uh, this event and this other event are, um, have some uh, similarity or some relation to each other, and things like that. So there are laws that an organism can observe. There's something a little bit homuncular here, but... Something what? Sorry? A something... bit homuncular here. Is homuncular, that, uh, okay. When I say that the organism observes sensory signals. Sure. But... <laughs> you can't avoid all <laughs> language Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I put it aside for now, yeah, uh, but, okay. it's, but it's, it's a little bit of a problem. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's... Um, so you have you imagine that you have a certain number of sensory signals and you can make uh, some actions where you can gain some knowledge by observing relations between sensory signals and relations between actions and sensory signals. And this idea you find in different authors. One is uh, Kevin Oregon with the sensory motor theory of perception. You also mm-hmm. have Gibson, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gibson, probably one of the first authors that really made me think deeply about these issues and who is not properly understood by computational neuroscientists, I think. Not properly understood or properly appreciated? Or both? Both, both, I think. In part because of confusion on the words, information and things like that. Mm. But you like his idea of affordances and that So affordances, of... affordances is the most yeah, affordances is the most uh, known concept of Gibson. Yeah. And it's an, obviously an important concept. But um, uh, in fact, what uh, I found really interesting at the time when I read his book was the concept of invariant structure. Ah, uh-huh. And so he says there is information in the invariant structure in a sensory flow. And uh, what, what he means by that is that when you move your head, for example, he was of, it, it was mainly... Uh, uh, working on vision, but it works also for audition and and others. Uh, when you move your head, when you move in the world, the uh, the sensory signals change, but the change in the way that is highly structured, because these uh, the signals come from uh, from a world which has uh, which follows the laws of physics, and so uh, uh, there is structure in this sensory flow, which you could say is the projection of these laws of physics on on your organs. And so the, and so there is some structure, projective structure, etc. Et As you change, it it progresses in accordance with those physical laws, but it but it's dependent on your changing and moving yeah. and acting. Yeah. And it also takes a form that is specific of your uh, own perspective, which which makes it uh internal and not dependent on an external observer, which is the whole key of Yes. That's why, for example, he disagrees with the idea that we reconstruct uh, the 3D structure of of objects. Like that what we're seeing, what we have internally is a perfect representation of the external world. Yes, in the sense of, uh, you know, you, of physics, you would imagine that uh, uh, you have a bunch of atoms and they are laid out in 3D space and that's what you're trying to reconstruct. Right, you're in, in your internal model. <laughs> yeah, uh, but that's not what we do exactly, because uh, he, he uh, argues, and these are very, very 
simple arguments is just have to open your eyes basically mm-hmm. is that the, the visual world is a world of surfaces it's not a 3d world exactly it's a world of surfaces that reflect lights and uh, and so what what you see are surfaces and 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 so you get uh, laws from your own perspective which are related to that and uh, but you don't really reconstruct 3d in the sense that you're making a 3d model as in um you know, a virtual reality uh, model. Yeah, you're on 3D printer in your head. It's not exactly yeah. that. Uh, right. So anyway. So we were so we were at Gibson and invariances and yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of information as relations. Uh, and so this, yeah, there's Oregon, there's Gibson. Also find that way back in um, like a century, uh, century ago in uh, Poincaré, for example. Mm-hmm. Charles Sanders Peirce, the, the, the pragmatists uh, are, you know, touch this as well. Yeah, pragmatism. So, uh, and yeah, pragmatism is also uh, related to the idea of affordances. We kind of digress here, but <laughs> uh, it, it questions what uh, uh, representation is, is supposed to, and, and what um, function it's supposed to fill, actually. Hmm. And this is important because... I mentioned before that uh, uh, one problem with the coding metaphor and why it is a metaphor is that uh, we use it uh, in a technical sense, but then we we actually uh, use it also in a more representational sense uh, without uh, demonstrating the link, basically. We claim representation when what we've done is is correlation or That's correspondence. That's right. Yeah. And, and my point... In the paper is not to say that there are no representations. Some some reviewers have <laughs> interpreted it in this way. Yeah, that's interesting. In fact, it's, yeah. it's a little bit the opposite. Not exactly, but my point is rather that a code, a neural code, doesn't have the properties that would make it a good representation or meaningful representation for an organism. And in fact, if I could uh, you know, make a specific... Uh, criticism to the use of the neural coding metaphor is that they don't take representation seriously in the sense that we say that uh, some neurons activity represents a giraffe or something like that just on the basis that there is a covariation between the existence of a giraffe and and this activity Mm -hmm. but i mean there's a lot of literature on representation in cognitive science and philosophy of science and philosophy of um, of mind and a representation is not just that. Representation is supposed to uh, fulfill some function and to have some very specific properties and to demonstrate those properties as, is not trivial. Why do we think there are mental representations in the first place? Well, there are different, there are different arguments in, for, for representations. One argument is that, well, we behave in the world and... We also think, perceive things. And this seems to happen in our brain. Well, the activity of neurons. But it's about something that is outside our brain. And and so there's this intuition that uh, we're using representations that ha- have are somehow um, determined by the environment, but at the same time accessible to the organism. So one of the properties... One of the very important properties of representation is that it has to be something 
intrinsically accessible by the organism. And that's something that a code is not, first thing. A code is not accessible to the organism because you, it's, it's defined on the basis of a correspondence with something outside the brain and, and, and only on that correspondence. So that's the first problem. And the second, a second property of representations, why, why would we need representations at all, is um, some form of, of abstraction, I would say. For example, I'll take again the example of sound localization. Okay. You have, for example, uh, uh, a cat. It's uh, in the grass, and it's, it's listening to some noise. It's a mouse scratching the grass. And then it hears that, and it goes to the source of the sound. It, it eats the mouse. What is very uh, interesting about that is that when you look at the sound waves that uh, arrive at the ears of the, of the cat, well, there's no direct indication of where uh, the mouse is. And, you know, the, the mouse is scratching the grass, it makes different sounds. The sound waves are different, but the position of the source is still the same. And so the cat seems to behave as a function of something that doesn't uh, depend directly on the, the sound waves, but something that is more abstract, something that is invariant to many aspects of the sounds. Well, what sound exactly it is. Only it seems to depend on where the sound comes from. And that's why we think, well, uh, the cat uses some kind of representation of where the, the sound comes from and, and uses that to, to do some action. And it could also, you know, with the same, with sounds coming from the same position, it could decide to flee uh, if, uh, if the cat thinks it's something uh, threatening or, or dependent on, on the cat's state. So with the same sensory signals, the cat could do different actions and it does these actions as a function of something quite abstract. Something that has yeah, invariances to intensity or to, um, you know, the precise thing that the mouse is doing. So if we want to show that something is a representation of sound location, what you need to do is not just that in your experiment, there was a covariation between the position of the source that you moved and some measurements that you make. You need to show, to show that it's a representation of sun location, you have to show that this thing actually uh, doesn't depend on something else. Uh, it's not going to be completely different if, uh, if you change the pitch of the sun or if you change uh, whatever. The, the time of day. Otherwise, you're not talking about a representation of sun location. You're just uh, talking about some covariation between two measurements. That's all. And... Uh, yeah, and the third property of representation, and maybe the key property of representation that you will find in the philosophical literature, is that a representation must uh, be verifiable. It can be right or it can be wrong. Mm-hmm. You need to have this is called system detectable error. That's because a phrase, yeah. Because says that a, a representation must have a truth va- truth value. It and a truth a possible, value, possible truth a possible value. truth value that can be assessed by the organism itself. For example, for the cat, well, the cat can run, and then it will find the mouse and eat it or not. So the representation will be correct or it will not be correct. Mm-hmm. There's a way here um, to 
to say whether the representation is correct or not for the organism. But out, outside of the organism's own action in trying to f get the mouse, outside of the cat uh, performing that action, there is no way internally to say whether that representation was correct. Exactly. That's the problem with the, uh, the, the coding view of representation is that it is based on an idea of representation that uh, is not verifiable by the organism, by the receiving end. Therefore, it's not a representation for the organism. It's a representation for the observer. Mm -hmm. It's the uh, paint, painting kind of representation. You know, you, have, you make a painting of some scene. It's a representation in the, of that scene in the sense that you can, you can look at the painting and you can look at the scene and check whether they match in some, in some aspects. But of course, that works only if you can look at the two. That's right. But the brain cannot look at its uh, own activity and at something outside itself. It's, uh, there's a problem here with this, with this notion. But your subjective sense, and, or my subjective experience, uh, if I'm going to turn and eat the mouse, is I do see it as a painting. I see it as a... A, a world model as if I have a model of the world. I see it as a 3D model of the world. And maybe the only way out of that is to say that we do have internal models of actions that we can compare against and that eventually we end up subjectively experiencing these things. I know that you avoided consciousness uh, as a topic really in the paper, but it's related to the idea of representation because it seems like something. And that something it seems like is is not the way that you're describing the way that representation truly works internal to the organism. I wonder if you could touch on that. Uh, what, on consciousness? Well, yeah, just the, the discrepancy between what this, our subjective sense mm. of what representation is commonly thought of, so I can represent yeah. the mouse in the field, and I, I can imagine it, right? And I can have a subjective experience of thinking of that mouse 2.7 radians behind me or, you know, or whatever. But if that doesn't match to the way we actually are quote unquote representing the way that representation necessarily has to happen for us to have a representation and for it not to be a representation for an external observer, I guess what I'm saying is the subjective sense is as if you are an external observer to that representation. Yeah. So, um, the problem with representation is not so much no, sorry, the problem with code is not, is not, as I say, so much with the problem of representation. I mean, right. there is a case for men mental representations in some sense, which yeah. um, at least in some pragmatic sense, that's, uh, uh, that was actually what the cat example illustrated. That is to say that uh, the cat has some representation of where the mouse is in the sense that it can go there at some right. potentially go at and get some it, yeah. um, position yeah. and then and then get it and and so it has this uh, truth value uh, in this sense it's a, it can be a representation but it doesn't have to be a thing a thing that you have in the brain that you can look at that's that's the main issue with uh, encoding Mm -hmm. uh, you can think of, of representations in terms of, of uh, the desired properties that uh, biological organisms do have, all this, uh, you know, acting as a function of abstractions, expectations, and things like that. 
but it doesn't have to be a thing that the brain is looking at. So there's something I touch upon, in fact, related to consciousness in um, my response, mm -hmm. which is that, yeah, as you say, w we have this intuition that we have representations because of our consciousness. Um, I mean, we experience something, something about the world, but it's, it's in us. But, and so the, the intuition is that since this is generated by our brains, and if we're materialist, we must believe that there must be some mapping between the state of a brain and the mental representation. And this, I think, is misleading intuition. So I gave a, a thought example, a thought experiment in my response. Do you know the TV series Bewitched? Oh, yeah, Bewitched. That's right. I remember this, this example when uh, yeah. she wrinkles her nose and blinks or something and everyone freezes. Did, did while you know she this, this TV series? Unfortunately, I watched too much television as a child, so yes. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, all right. Um, so, okay, there's uh, this, this witch uh, in disguise, and she's a housewife. And, um, and so she can uh, twitch her nose, and when she does that, every, the world freezes, and so she can do different things and um, solves, solve different problems. And then she unfreezes, and, and the world uh, keeps on as if nothing happened. Now the question is, what happens during the time uh, when the world is frozen to the person whose brains are frozen? Military guy, wasn't he? The, the man of the house was a... Ah, I yeah. can't remember the character. Anyway, he, yes, what happens to I him forgot. when he's frozen and she's solving problems? <laughs> yeah. During that time, is he just experiencing the same thing during all that time? Perceiving something, but just for a long time? It doesn't, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. You, you would think that uh, actually what happens is just he had a notice and it's for him, really, that event just didn't happen, in fact just like as he experienced in the show, like it didn't happen. Right. But if you think that, uh, you know, there must be a mapping between the state of the brain and, and what you're experiencing, then, then that's what you should think, though. And what this suggests to me is that experiencing, it's a verb, experiencing uh, or representing is an activity. A process. It's a process. It's not something... Uh, it's not a painting. In fact, there's no such thing as a painting. Right. Even, even a painting. You look at a painting, it's an activity again. So, uh, I think it's just wrong to look for something like a painting in the brain. There is no painting that we'll look at. It's just the activity. And so maybe uh, to think in terms of representation we should perhaps think in terms of properties of, uh, that we, we are looking for in the system. Those properties like you know, abstract properties, expectations, these kind of properties, anticipatory properties, etc. This is related to the notion of a process versus substance metaphysics, which yes. maybe I'm not sure we have time to really get into, but this is from, again, Bickhard's... Right work, which you're, I know you're fond of, and um, you, you made me go down the rabbit hole and read a bunch of his work, so thanks for that. Mm -hmm. um, 
But the idea then is to think of representations as processes. And well, briefly, the process versus substance metaphysics is the notion, the difference between that there are things in the world, particles, atoms, versus there are not things, there are processes in the world. There are the processes by which we call uh, atoms and the things that we see. And, and we live generally in a, we sort of assume in our daily lives that the world is, a, is made up of substances, of things, uh, when in f it could be made up of processes. And it's hard to wrap my head around it, but I, in the past year or so, I've, um, I keep revisiting in this idea and thinking it's more and more correct that there, there's no such thing as nouns, there are only verbs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's the, it's, it's the key point, probably. And it's not just about um, perception and representation and all that. I think it's it's whole biology. Mm. If you take a cell, a neuron, even though we say a neuron lasts uh, eight years or so, well, everything that constitutes the neuron has changed many, many, many times over that that uh, duration. The Heraclitian neuron. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's turnover. It takes yeah. you know over a few days or maybe weeks. Uh, all the proteins have been replaced. Mm -hmm. It's really a dynamic thing. When you really look at it, you just don't realize it, but it's a dynamic thing. And uh, even something like uh, a ionic channel, it's some form of abstraction. You have processes that uh, involve proteins and different things in the cell, and it's, and it's dynamic. And to understand a cell you need to understand the organization of those processes mm -hmm. rather than the stuff that they are made of. That's right. This is challenging. This is challenging. It's related to the point that we discussed previously about Frankenstein models. That's related really to this uh, substance metaphysics. We think that, well, there is the sodium channel, there is the potassium channel, I put them together, I get a neuron. Right. right. But by doing that, you uh, dismiss the organization of processes. Um, the fact that this, uh, all these channels, they are uh, related to each other by different processes, which means, which implies that their, their properties are in fact related. And, and these are things that we know, in fact, that has been documented. Um, and though the challenge is to think in terms of, pro of the organization of a cell, the dynamic organization of the cell rather than uh, the substances that a cell is made of. Well, okay, so I know that we have very few moments left here, and then there are two questions I would like to ask you if you have uh, okay. time. Yeah. We'll do. So so one is just, so the coding metaphor, let's just say you're right, that it's, um, it's, a, it's a problem. Yet, neuroscience, biology, neuroscience, let's say, has made tremendous progress Eventually, it will run up against a wall, right? But it's interesting that we have been able to make so much progress under a false metaphor. And I wonder, well, what you think about that. <laughs> Isn't it wild that we can do so much under such false assumptions and metaphors? <sighs> That's a difficult question. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, I know we've made progress, but uh, what kind of progress? Well, we can... I, I still personally have no idea what perception is. But, but who cares if you understand what perception is, as long as we can help people with dementia? 
you know, for oh, instance, Okay, right? but that's, so, that's a completely different, different question because you can cure people without having any idea how the drug works. So, um, so that's well, right, not really okay, the issue uh, here. Not, maybe, let, maybe not drugs. Let's say you could, um, under a coding metaphor, potentially stimulate neurons in a very particular pattern to give someone uh, relief uh, from their anxiety, for instance, right? And only having gone this far under the coding metaphor from Hubel and Wiesel uh, on up, right? You know, I'm not sure Hubel and Wiesel committed the, co the coding metaphor, in fact, when you look at the papers. Yeah, okay. I'm just saying from the... Because we... No, wait, let's not get into a, a, a <laughs> diatribe about the history, you know, but but from, yeah. uh, let's say, Barlow, for instance, right? You know, would that make you happier, Barlow? Well, if you look at, at Barlow, uh, that's interesting because in uh, his uh, early papers, he talk about uh, coding in the retina, mostly, mm -hmm. and he makes it very clear that it's just one particular perspective. So his, uh, it's, it's fine to use metaphors, in fact, as long as you're aware that it is one and you're aware of the limitations. Uh, I mean, metaphors, or I mean, analogies more generally. Analogies, yeah. Uh, they, are, they are very useful scientifically. Uh, they help you uh, think, develop concepts. It's, it's not a problem in itself. Uh, what's the problem is, is to confuse the analogy with the real thing. So it's, uh, it's a particular perspective on the system. In the case of Barlow, he was looking uh, at the retina. And in the case of the retina, there are some arguments to use a communication metaphor. I can think of two. One is that you have uh, things that belong to two different domains. One is, is, is light and the other is ionic currents, the biological domain. And there's an interface where these things need to be translated somehow. Yeah. And I'm using linguistic metaphor again. And, uh, and so there is a case for using uh, communication ideas for transduction. There's also a case for using uh, communication ideas when you think of the, uh, uh, the optic nerve. The optic nerve creates a bottleneck where you have to, you know, uh, it's very difficult not to use those metaphors, but I can, yeah. I can use them. I, I'm, I'm comfortable yeah. using them. As long as you wink when you say it. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, you have this bottleneck. You have uh, the eye is, on the, is in the front of your, of your head and the visual cortex is in the back. And so you have to convey all this information. Yes, he's doing air quotes. Yes. You can't hear <laughs> air quotes. Uh, exactly. Uh, f from the retina to the visual cortex. There is a, uh, a case for, uh, for using communication metaphor because there is a communication issue. But then using communication metaphor in, once you're in the cortex becomes much more questionable. Who, who are you talking to? Who, who's, the, who's the brain is talking to exactly? Um, that's a bit problematic. I mean, in the case of the, of the retina, well, um, there, it's, it's mostly one way. It goes from the retina to the cortex. Okay, maybe a little bit, a few things back but and not much it's mainly one directional yeah so you could uh, it's a perspective that has some value mm. but w when you just take one neuron in the middle of the cortex that that's a bit more difficult to, to make the case so um yeah I, I don't think using metaphors is a problem in itself it's just then when it becomes so widespread that you it seems that you you can't do any science without using it 
then it, then it's a problem. It, it's and, interesting. And, Go ahead. Yeah. And Barlow, in fact, in a, in his papers, talked about uh, the idea of efficient coding, but he also explicitly mentioned other possible hypothesis mm-hmm. uh, one talking about uh, what these these neurons are doing like uh, detection and I don't remember exactly but or yeah another perspective is uh, is control for example and it's a completely different perspective right back from the cybernetics movement and the yeah which is exactly yeah. Um, he just thought that in his case uh, it was a it was a good perspective basically but it doesn't mean that it's a universal perspective on perception or on the brain I mean, it's it's interesting. Claude Shannon himself uh, even wrote a piece uh, warning against taking his sense of information, which he had seen explode into all other domains of science, and everyone mm. was talking about Shannon information. He wrote a little, just a very short piece, warning people: this is not the only sense of information, and it's not applicable to all domains. Well, we don't we don't heed those sorts of warnings. We just <laughs> move forward with what we see as successful uh, metaphors, I suppose. Yeah, I even quoted a a review which said that uh, Shannon information is uh, basically the only uh, uh, you know good definition or formal definition of information. Like Galastel? Are you talking about no, Randy? No, no. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot. It's in the paper, yeah, but yeah. I, I no, forgot. Okay. I forgot yeah. who it was. I disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's happened again. Uh, we've only gotten to about a, a quarter of the, the things that I wanted to talk about, but uh, this has been a lot of fun. And hopefully it's just a good teaser for people to go and, and read your paper and be introduced to the rest of your work in, in your blog, for instance. So uh, I know you have to go pick up your child. I have to go make yeah. my child breakfast, <laughs> uh, my children. I only make uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> breakfast for one child at a time. Yeah. Um, but um, I really appreciate the time, and hopefully Me we too. can do this again because there's there's lots more to talk about. Uh, sure. We didn't even didn't even get to talk about AI, which I was going to ask you about. So. Oh. <laughs> but okay. continue the good work, man, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.